You're listening to the Sixers Beat with your host, Derek Bodner, right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner. I'm joined by Rich Hoffman. We have not abandoned this podcast, contrary to popular belief. How you doing, Rich? Not bad, man. Been a long time. It, it a lot, had, of, it, it's lot funny. of stuff has happened. I see you every day, but we have not been able to uh, to get one of these podcasts. And unfortunately, our day jobs kind of get a little hectic at this time of year. Uh, and then we really had maybe one day in Miami where we could have done a podcast. And we kind of said, screw it, we're going to go to South Beach instead. <laughs> so uh, apologies for that. I'm, it's a half-hearted apology, don't get me wrong. Definitely needed one kind of like one day just to relax, or really more like one night because there was a shoot around or a practice that day. And then we got back and we kind of ran into some things. I had a personal thing one day, then the next day you got poked in the eye playing basketball because we take realism on this podcast very seriously and want to cover the team that we cover as in-depth as possible. So thanks for going the extra effort, effort, Rich, but here we are. Here we are. It's it's true. I did get poked in the eye, and I will not need a face mask to cover <laughs> whoever the Sixers will play in the second round. The uh, I, I did like your uh, half-hearted apology, by the way. That was uh, your version of Brett Brown's. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm wet the other night. Uh, <laughs> wait, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. I, I I'm enjoying being doused by uh, chocolate milk and water and wh- whatever the hell Which, the rest of the, the Sixers players threw on them. I mean, we we saw this happen. I, what was it? TJ got the triple double, and somebody threw chocolate chocolate milk on them. That's evil, dearly man. De- that is evil. Yeah, that was the dearly departed Trevor Booker. <laughs> yes, that is a, a a tradition that should die. But all right, where do we even begin? Like, I guess we got to look back. Obviously, the uh, Buck Celtics will go seven games, so we don't know who they're going to play yet. We won't know until Saturday. Um, what a series, man! It was it was the weirdest. Joe came back, and you saw three weeks of rust offensively right from the jump. Like, he just had – he looked like he had no idea what to do with the basketball. And they kept forcing it to him a little bit. He kept trying to create something. He has, a you know, the three-week layoff. He has a mask that he has to come back with against a tough defense, and he's just completely out of rhythm. And then you watch him defensively, man, and if he didn't take over those last three games offensively, woof. That was a clinic. That was a clinic. It was it was really impressive for them to go down there into Miami, get two wins, win every second half they played. If they won all five second halves, I think they came within a point of winning all ten quarters in the second half. I think they might have lost fourth quarter in game five by like a point or something like that. That was an impressive showing. That was an impressive showing. Brett had a great line before game five. He, he was referring to... Embiid's performance, specifically in Game 4, he called him Bill Russell on defense and hasn't played in three weeks on <laughs> right, offense. Right. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, Joe, you, you could just see it. The uh, I think a, a lot of people thought, okay, this is an experienced Miami team. They're going to be, or, you know, I mean, when I say experience, they've been in the playoffs and you have guys like Wade and Spolstra who, who have been there before. You thought in the second half the Sixers might be the team to get tight in some of these close games. The Heat 
would be the group that would execute better down the stretch. Uh-uh. It was the opposite. And, you know, this Sixers team really, they have, it's obviously a very young team, but they have a, a maturity that goes beyond their years. And, you know, that, that comes from Simmons orchestrating the offense. They're, they're late-game execution. I, I wouldn't even say for most of the series it was super clutch time, even though that, that happened a little bit in Game 4 with that that Simmons dunk where Reddick screened and then that Reddick jumper. But besides that, it just it seemed like in the beginning of the fourth quarter, they just they put their foot on the gas pedal and they executed to the point where they, they basically put the game out of reach. And it was uh you know, it was an interesting first round opponent. I, I thought it was it was almost the, the perfect opponent in that the Heat did not have the elite talent. You could tell that. You could tell in the fourth quarter after the Sixers sort of had figured them out every game and after the Heat just got tired guarding the Sixers, whether that's Simmons or or Redick running off screens, the Sixers took over. But the Heat mucked the game up, and they were dirty at times, and they were physical, and it it was a good taste of playoff basketball for the Sixers. And they, they passed every test that the Heat gave them with flying colors in the end. You know, you mentioned mucking it up. And you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a perfectly descriptive phrase. I'm very glad we don't have to talk about that anymore. I'm sick of sick of talking about mucking it up basketball because, as you pointed out to me, I think one day in Miami, mucking it up means you're not talented enough to really be taken seriously. And that's a perfect description for Miami Heat. And I think I forget if it was Game Three or Game Four. One of the games in Miami where they came out and they were just dreadful. I think it was Game Three. Was it Joe's first game back when they turned it over like a million times? That was the second game. So it was Game Four. And they came out and they played the worst offensive quarter half they may have played in in, in three months. And you were disgust. You were disgusted watching it, was, it. it. I mean, it was a disgusting half of basketball. <laughs> and then they came out in the third quarter and you go, okay, look, they're only down five. It was a minor miracle. I don't know how this happened, but as long as they execute, they can steal a win, head back home, up three to one, and close out the series. And they came out and they turned over the ball over like five times in the first five minutes. Like, what is going on? And a good team, a really good playoff team, that's a 25-point game. They have no chance to come back. But because this Miami team has so little offensive firepower, the Sixers could sputter for two and a half quarters and still through a dominating uh, defensive effort in the fourth quarter be able to steal that game. They're not going to have quite that kind of, of flexibility coming ahead. I mean, they might if they play if they play Boston. Boston might be just as bad of an offensive team. But if they want to get to where they want to go, which seems like that changes every week, they're going to have to execute a little more consistently than they did. But you're right. Miami was really the, the, the best measuring stick for them because they played, you know, everybody talks about playoff basketball being more physical. And sometimes oh, it enough is. Enough of the word physical, by the way. <laughs> oh, my God. Sometimes it is. A lot of times we just like to glorify it. Miami really is more physical. Though. That's the only way they really can play is to get you at a rhythm like that. So they got to experience that but also against a team where they had enough margin for error where they could kind of feel their way through. And like we said, offensively in the fourth quarter, it wasn't always pretty. Certainly it was in game one. Uh, it probably was in, in game five. But a lot of those other games they won in the, in the second half through sheer force of will and through defensive impact. And again, against a Miami team, it's a little easier to do. I think Miami ended the series shooting 29% when Joe was in the game, something absurd like that. It's not going to be that easy, but it's a perfect kind of, you know, easier way in to playoff basketball for a lot of these young guys. And they got Joe back, man. I mean, at the beginning of the series, we had no idea when he was going to play. 
Yep. I think I think most of us guessed that it would be by the third game, but I mean, even then, we all wondered, all right, well, what is he going to look like when he comes back? Is it going to take him a little while to get back on track? And for half the game, the answer is undoubtedly yes. But it, it's just good to have him back playing. It seems like he's in high spirits. Uh, and then, I mean, game five, what a uh, what an amazing scene in that locker room after the game. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And Look, you can make too much out of that, I think, at times. like We we look at that, and most teams would have an amazing scene. But you could just you could just see the camaraderie with that group and see the respect for Coach Brown. Uh, for him to really develop that kind of culture, like like we said, he developed a winning culture through four years of not winning at all. It, was, it really is, he was the right guy for that time period, and that's the way a guy, you know, that's the way media members and fans kind of gave him a backhanded compliment, the right guy for that time period. Well, I think this year what he's shown is he's now the right guy for this phase of the rebuild as well. And that was one of the questions a lot of people had. And to be able to see that answered in this season and then to be, see that rewarded with this series, it was great to see. It, it bothers me when baseball teams, they uh, they bring out the champagne and beers after winning every the round. Pie, the pie in the face that yeah, the Phillies after, do after every, like, Regular after, season game after you win the play-in yeah. game for right. the MLB playoffs, that that kind of bothers me. Uh, but for this Sixers team, I mean, because because I talked to you know the two guys I wanted to talk to for my story were Robert Covington and TJ McConnell. Those guys were ten and seventy-two two years ago. This does not happen all that much. Not without a LeBron James type acquisition or some massive overhaul in free agency. For just a, a team to have a rebuilding process sped up at this level is unbelievable. And, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the, the scene of Brett, you know, J- Brett offering J.J. the bell and then J.J. giving it back to him and, and you know, Brett hugging Embiid while also getting two-hand shoved by uh, by Kyle Anderson. It, it was – or, sorry, by Justin Anderson. <laughs> it was a uh, – it was great. It was awesome to see. I don't, you know, even as a media member, I've gotten most of my fandom, I think, beaten out of me at, at this point. Like, I don't hate the Boston Celtics the same way uh, every uh, Sixers fan seems to, for example. It, it was just a really cool thing to see. Um, and for Brett, you know, after all those years of losing his record, he's still, what, 200 and 50 games under 500 or something yeah. crazy. Seven more seasons of 50-win basketball, and he'll be right there. Right there. Yeah, just to see him get that. And, I, you know, it, it, that was a big talking point before the series was how is Brett going to fare against Spolstra? And then you had game one where he he had a great adjustment where he went to Ilyasova at halftime. Then game two, Spolstra got him back a little bit. And then game three – he, he gets Embiid and everything's okay. And then the the plays he drew up at the end of Game Four, Brett really held his own. He's not. Uh, I, I think what we saw is this is a guy who, yeah, while he's never been a head coach in the playoffs, he's seen a shit ton of playoff basketball, and he's been a part of that. And uh, I think his time in San Antonio prepared him pretty well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Seen a lot of playoff basketball. Been a head coach, as he will remind you whenever he can for a long time. He certainly did not look like he was out of place in the moment. Did, yeah, did somebody was it, was this on a broadcast where they somebody said 
Well, he does have championship experience. He won the 1994 Australian <laughs> League title. <laughs> Just Almost a little the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. You say we don't have rooting interest the way we used to. And it's funny because on the one hand, we both grew up in the Philadelphia area, and we obviously both grew up basketball fans. Put one and one together, clearly. I mean, I was I was at more playoff games than I can think of during the Iverson run, which which dates me a little bit, but whatever, fuck it. It is different, but what we can still root for are our travel interests. And I was, we had a little bit of an argument this week over what we wanted to see, because travel-wise, Boston is the outcome you prefer. But rest-wise, we all two more days of not traveling wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So the uh, the Bucks winning this and forcing us to a game seven a little risky, but we do get that two days of rest. That's what our rooting interest is, and uh, and so far so good. Let, let let me tell all of our listeners too that our uh, my my co-host has <laughs> just a completely conflicting ideology <laughs> when it comes to travel compared to uh, say the important stuff like draft prospects. This is Mister Try and Hit the Home Run when Joel and Bead still on the board. But when I when I protested and said, "Eh, let's let's get a couple more days off here no. and see if uh, the Celtics can win in Game Seven. Mr. Mr. Bodner over here was rooting for uh, for the Celts to win Look, in six. I, just to, I just, just, I just want a little it. bit of certainty that I'm not heading to Milwaukee. I'll I'll swing for the fences with Joel number one overall, but just give me that guaranteed trip to Boston instead of Milwaukee, and uh, and I'll take it. Um, I'm risking it. I'm risking it, dude. I'm, I think I think the stat Embiid. is what eighty five percent of home teams win a game seven, so I think we should be safe on the Boston trip and still get those two extra days of rest. But I would have. Wouldn't have mind locking that one in there. Well, on, on a related note, in terms of travel rooting interests, I mean, it, it's been a it's been a crazy three weeks because, I mean, first at the end of the uh, regular season, we were scoreboard watching. At, at one moment, we were going to Milwaukee. At the other mo- next moment, it was Washington, and then it finally ended up being Miami. I mean, it, it still could have been Indiana at one point because. Uh... I mean, the Sixers squash that in about three minutes of playing time That's against true. the Bucks, but it, it theoretically could have been a could have been against the Pacers. And I yep. had no interest in going into Indianapolis either, even less in Milwaukee. Yeah, and you're right. Going into that night, Indiana was also on the board, and watching that Cavs series, I think the Sixers made the right call to blow out the Bucks that night. Indiana seems like they're uh, a tier above these other three teams. I uh, and and then we get to the point where on. When was Game Five Tuesday night? Uh, yeah, when, whenever it was, the Sixers had that series completely wrapped up. And I gotta say, I uh, I enjoyed that series for about three, even four. I mean, Game Four was that that crazy Saturday game. Once the Sixers got up three one and had two games left at home, and after it felt like, all right, Miami is has thrown their their best punch to uh, use another boxing analogy. Uh, there's Reddick made a good point. Why why do we use boxing analogies for for every other sport? Every I don't know. But eh, they're easy. I don't know. It's it is what it is. But it really did feel like the Sixers took Miami's best punch in those games and Miami on the other hand couldn't deal with the Sixers at their absolute worst. It, we were rooting pretty hard not to go to Miami. Yes. As, for, for, as for fun as two. Miami can be, we would have flown down there Wednesday night, had a game Thursday, and then flown back Friday morning. It wouldn't have barely even qualifies as being in Miami. But anyway, I'm sure almost nobody cares about our our travel thoughts. You know, I think 
my biggest takeaway, and like you said, Miami only really had a shot when one of two things happened. First of all, when, when Justice Winslow went frickin' berserk, which I still don't know how that happened, but uh, good for him. Uh, that was uh, the weirdest game ever, by the way. As they, Brett would say, shake his hand and, and congratulate him and move on. After not guarding him right. for three games, he turned into Ray Allen for about three quarters. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the only way they could you know, really keep in it. Or by the Sixers turning it over a million times. And they still barely, and I think they were shooting like 30% from three during that stretch too. And they still barely held the lead. And both of those were real good signs that once the Sixers really, really picked up their play, that this was going to be an easy, easy W. And for the Sixers, Embiid added like an element of toughness to them. We're, again, punching them in the mouth. Uh, boxing analogy. He just went inside, forced his way, got to the line a ton, and really frustrated them and took them out of their game. And for as much as he struggled offensively, and up until maybe the second half of Game 5, he was really struggling offensively. He still added a, a, a dynamic to that team that they otherwise didn't have. And I think he, I, I do think he frustrated them at times. They really yeah. can. There aren't many teams that can match the Sixers' pace, Shooting, movement, and physicality in defense—it's a—it's a. I mean, that, that's why they've won what twenty out of twenty-one games right now. It's really a great mix, and yeah, I mean, when you look at Embiid's line from Game Four, he shot two of eleven, right, and zero for four from three, and I still thought he was pretty good. He dominated. I, I think I think when you when you look at the other end of the floor, the overall product is. Yeah, I, I'm taking that any day because he absolutely sealed off the paint in the second half of that game. And he's, I mean, he, when you say he brings an element of toughness, it's it's true because th- that's what the, everybody was being asked after game two. It, it, you know, the Sixers lost kind of a slower game to the heat and they, you know, used some, what some people would call some Bush league tactics against Simmons. I, I, I really didn't mind it too much. I think, you know, it was good for Simmons to play, in some of those games, and, and I, you know, everybody was asking the other Sixers players, including Simmons, what were they going to do? And they hit him back. I mean, Simmons, that uh, that shot on Dwayne Wade in uh, in Game Four, that screen, I think that's going to get a lot of the attention. But you know, a lot of those players, uh, Amir, I thought brought a smart level of physicality. Dario did a little bit. Ursan, a, a lot of those guys were ready to fight back. But like you said, I mean, Embiid is a battering ram. Yep. Some of those screens he was setting, first off, were completely illegal. But <laughs> the refs were letting a lot go on both sides. Uh, I mean, he I think it was the first play of the game in game three. He injured Tyler Johnson's hand on a screen where he just freaking nailed him. And then when he and uh, Adebayo were wrestling in the post, those were some freaking wars, man. Yep. Like, boom, 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 boom. He he brought a level of physicality that was just it, – it's really hard to bully a team when Joel Embiid yep. is playing for it. It, it. That's basically what it comes down to. And then, I mean, how great was the mask in game three when – Winslow steps on it, and then Embiid afterwards. He actually said this to us in the locker room, I, I guess practicing his line before he stepped onto the podium. But he, you had asked him in the locker room, uh, what did you think when Winslow stepped on his mask? And this, this was off the record at the time, but he basically said what uh, he said at the podium a few minutes later. 
Yeah, man, I, I got 50 of those. That Little did they know that. Uh, it's not like him stepping on that. It's going to gonna bother me. Which, uh, uh, I, which Heat player do you think was the most annoying to the Sixers? I'm not going to say annoyed you because we're, we're not supposed to get annoyed at that stuff. But who do you think was the most annoying Heat player throughout the series? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take James Johnson off the table because that's real-world stuff. He would win if we're just talking about domestic abuse and he wins every time. I'm talking, I'm talking on-the-court stuff. Yes. Uh, Kyle made a great point. Like Enough with the James Johnson is, uh, could, could beat you in a real fight. We're not talking about that. Uh, who was the most annoying in terms of playing? Um, I think probably ju- Justice, I would say. Maybe Kelly Olenek. But, but those two guys seem to, uh, seem to bother the Sixers. I don't, I don't really know. I mean, Whiteside, you know, he He's got almost embar- sympathetic at this point. He got embarrassed. Yeah. I thought, I thought Josh Richardson was pretty good too. Josh Richardson. Uh, He's the one, then, if I was going to pick anyone on the team, on the Sixers, he would be my guy. I think he'd look real good on this team. His hands were Covington-esque yep. with how quick they are. I mean, some of those steals. I mean, I, I'm writing a, a story uh, about that, that involves some of the things that happened in game four right now. There was a play where uh, Saric tried to cross over in front of Richardson, and that was just a no-no. I mean, that was the easiest steal he'll ever make. And, and Dario did have uh, some advantages over Richardson, and I, I think that's the beauty of Simmons, too. When you saw James Johnson, their uh, their nominal power forward, g- having to guard Simmons, which put Richardson, who's a good defender, but it made him slide over to the Sixers' power forwards. The Sixers' power forwards could lean on him and get offensive rebounds, yep. and that's something that really helped the Sixers out. Ilyasova and Amir, I thought, were both just great on the board. Charge, too. I think he had six offensive boards one game. Yeah, and and when Ilyasova and, and Sarge got those, they basically were just bigger than Richardson, and he couldn't box them out. So that's, I mean, Simmons, the benefits of having a 6'10 point guard who can credibly actually play point guard on both ends of the floor, it's, it's just massive. And obviously, you know, he continued to play Great basketball, but uh, yeah, I, they, they had a lot of those guys. I, you know, Olenek, I thought bothered them with their uh, their shooting a little bit. I thought, you know, Adebayo had some good moments too. Wade, uh, I thought he played a really intelligent series. I thought he was their best passer. But w- when you look up and down the list, these guys just they did not have the elite level talent that the Sixers had. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure they had some of the role players that the Sixers had. No, not not even close, especially on that first point. The Sixers were far more talented, which is why we said earlier this was a perfect first-round opponent because they could get kind of some of these, uh, you know, learning experiences out of their system against a team that they should be able to just over-talent, and they did, and they did. Um, I was going to say, uh, fucking lost it, Christ. Uh, you can start talking, and I'll see if I remember anything. Well, I mean, not, not everything was great. The uh, the backup point guard. What the hell? I had something I wanted to talk about, and then he kept talking. And I, it's gone. Just gone. Happens, man. It's been a long season. Uh, long season. Long season. Longer than I'm s- used to, at least. Yeah. And it, it it could be going on a lot longer because uh, I watched that Celtics-Bucks game tonight. I'm not yeah, I'm not, I'm not terrified. 
I, I think they they got a chance to make the conference finals. I would kind of be surprised. Uh, not not everything's great though. The uh, the Markel Fultz stuff is still pretty weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still weird. Uh, and at this point, nobody really wants to talk about it because there's more important things that people care about. But it's uh still hanging out there. He what he played a decent game one. And then was yeah. just complete train wreck games two and three and didn't play in four and five. It'll be interesting to see against Boston if they play Boston. I think he'd have a lot of the same troubles in terms of being able to really create against that. I mean, it, can you just imagine Marcus Smart defending um, Markel Fultz? It wouldn't, wouldn't really work all that well right now. Uh, maybe against Milwaukee, but even, even them with their size, if they're – dialed in a little bit I don't know I I do think at one point Brett will go back and give Markel another chance I didn't think after he took him out in game four or didn't play him in game four I didn't expect it to be against Miami but I do think at some point he will see if he can tap into that well again but he might have a real quick hook we might we might see maybe five more minutes of Markel Fultz and that could be it I mean if he's going to play defense and transition defense the way he did in game three with the Lack of offense that he's giving you, he's 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 not going to get much time at all. Speaking of Marcus Smart, if the Sixers do play the Celtics, we could see an all-time not guarding somebody situation. Yeah. <laughs> he'll st- he'll stand right back there in that paint. Yeah, no problem. Yep. Yeah. So who uh, among those two teams? Because I I assume we'll release this before Saturday night. <laughs> you never know, man. You never know. <laughs> Who uh, of those two teams would you, if you were the Sixers, who would you rather see? So we're we're not counting on travel plans. We no, okay. we're not. We're okay. we're giving the people what they want. I tend to like to go against the teams that do not execute well and are not coached well, and that's a pretty clear edge to Milwaukee at this point. <laughs> I knew uh, you were talking about. <laughs> that might be the biggest coaching discrepancy I've ever seen in the playoffs. And the two teams play like that. Milwaukee will just hand you a game because they play like they have no idea. Like they they remind me sometimes of 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 a, like a people who go to a local gym and you play pickup basketball. Their rotations sometimes remind me of that. <laughs> I, I would I would take them in a heartbeat. Even though Boston, I have no idea how Boston would score against the Sixers. I just don't know how it would work out. But by the same token, I do know that Boston will force the Sixers into turnovers. They will have a couple nights where uh, where the Sixers won't connect from three, and they'll be able to steal a game or two. Whereas Milwaukee, I mean, Milwaukee will just give you – they will hand you a game on a silver platter. And as much as Giannis is terrifying, I'll take that anytime. I get paid to cover the NBA. I'm going to be honest. I did not know who Joe Prunty was until, <laughs> I don't know, early April. <laughs> I, I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, I nope. don't think, now. Uh, totally agree with your assessment of those two, and I, I would just generally say that I would probably rather play Milwaukee, although either way, I think the Sixers should win this series. Uh, I mean, it, it's really it, a it perfect might, storm, right? You got a, 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 either, either way, you have a team the Sixers should beat and a series that should be exciting for two different reasons. One for the, the Boston-Philly rivalry, and shorter travel, and the other for two superstars, well, three superstars in Giannis and Bede and Simmons with more travel. Um, in case you haven't noticed, travel's really guiding my rooting interest right now. But I think I think I think it should be good and fun and hopefully victorious either way it goes. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, I, I just think, you know, I, I have to say too, uh, Colangelo gets a lot of flack, and uh, again, we if you if you want to go back a couple podcasts, we spent a long time on uh, on his uh, on his reign and, and sort of grading what he's done so far. Did you see, by the way, on uh, on TNT, they did not yeah. uh, credit Hinky at all. <laughs> I saw that. And, My phone blew up. It, yeah, it's a. Uh, you do wonder. I think it was Dan Pfeiffer who questioned whether or not the NBA is instructing people to do that, especially broadcast partners like TNT. I have no idea, but you do you do kind of wonder because that was a pretty glaring omission. Pretty glaring. Well, especially after uh, Michael Weber's performance in the stands in Game One, yeah. when he when he yelled at Adam Silver, uh, yeah, it seemed like it was an honest mistake by the announcer. I saw that he apologized on Twitter, but it was like, come on, man, let's let's get it together. Uh, is, is that amazing or what? Sixers fans are so rabid that they forced an apology. Yeah, that's pretty I think crazy. I said it was it was an honest mistake, and I'm thinking, all right, it was a pretty bad one. Uh, I, I will say one thing. We talked. This is what I was going to talk about like 20 minutes ago when I forgot what I was going to talk about. Ben Simmons and and Covington as well. The fact that you, you brought up the fact that you can ask Simmons to play point guard on both ends. That was one thing we really questioned over the summer. Him yeah. defending point guards. And I think based on what he showed at LSU, we weren't wrong to question that. It was never really an athleticism question as much as it was a focus and a technique question. And even to a lesser extent, Covington. You know, we, in the summer, we clearly said, look, you can switch Covington onto a point guard. You can throw Covington onto a point guard for a change of pace, but I don't know if Covington can defend a point guard, you know, 82 games. And I think sometimes, you know, a lot of times, people will get on Covington's defense when they see a point guard blow by him. And they'll kind of, well, actually, his defense. And my counter to that is that's not even remotely his natural position. And the fact that we can have this conversation of Ben Simmons adequately defending point guards and Robert Covington adequately adequately defending point guards, when you add in all the other things they can do on that end of the court, defending the four, the three, the two, switching, forcing deflections, covering ground, contesting shots... That's a pretty special combination. And I still do think ultimately there's going to be one closer to point guard size player on the court. Again, we always in theory thought that was going to be Markel Fultz. One of the big, you know, for as much optimism as I think we had a couple weeks ago over the way Fultz at least came back and contributed, even if the jump shot still wasn't there. Now that we've, you know, ratcheted up the defense in the playoffs. There's still going to be a major question mark over the summer, but hopefully he slides into that role because then Simmons and Covington, along with Embiid, just become such monsters on that end of the court because they can. You can throw – maybe Covington is going to struggle at times defending Drogic, who's, you know, really shifty with the ball over the course of a five-game season. You know, that's 150 defensive possessions. But you ask him to do that for a change of pace and a switch, it's just – it's going to be an incredible – an incredibly, you know – diverse defensive group yep and uh and Cub did a nice job on Dragic tricky point guard but couldn't really do a lot and uh another thing that the Heat weren't able to do that I think teams down the line here in the playoffs perhaps not in this round because as we said I'm not sure about the talent level on both of these teams for uh, the talent level for Milwaukee is better than Boston but they obviously have their coaching issues and whatnot 
I, Miami did not have a player who could punish the Sixers' worst defenders. And that's – I brought right. up Colangelo a little bit because, you know, we, we've talked about what, whatever he's done. Redick and Bellinelli and Ilyasova played great in that series. They were really freaking helpful. And and Redick and Bellinelli, just, just running those simple little flex actions, the, the pressure they put on the defense was crazy. And then Ilyasova is just a guy who seems like he's in the right spot at all times. So So they definitely played well. Down the line, though, those are obviously the guys that LeBron attacked in that game uh, right, right before the end of the season where they were able to uh, to get LeBron isolated on them and just kill the Sixers' defense. Again, again, that game was without Embiid, but down the line, that that's kind of what you worry about. The Heat did not have a player who could take advantage of those situations. I mean, Wade was their best option, and really all he was getting you was a contested step-back jumper. And he won him a game doing that. But I'll tell you what, when I went back and rewatched game two and you saw some of the bullshit shots he was hitting, I mean, it was a vintage Dwayne Wade performance. It was also something I was pretty confident he wasn't going to replicate. And he, realistically, he did. He had another game like that. Um, but, yeah, winning, winning four out of five like that, or winning four out of seven like that just wasn't going to happen. You're right, though. Once you get a more competent team, I mean, we, that image of LeBron is still etched into my memory. And that will be really interesting to see how they adjust to that if these two teams do make it to the conference finals. But yes, those those types of players, especially Bellinelli. I mean, Bellinelli's just he is he, he, he he's really bad defensively. He's really bad. Defensively, I, try, I tried to avoid hyper, hyperbole, but I was going much more forceful than that. But he's been really good offensively. Yeah. So yeah, and I mean, I think Toronto also could potentially pose those problems to DeRozan against Bellinelli probably won't end well for the Sixers. Uh, but Cleveland and Toronto, they have their own work to do, unlike the Sixers. And, I mean, isn't it crazy? The Sixers were the first team to take care of business. Yeah. yeah. All these other teams are scratching and clawing. I mean, not not only are the rest of these series at least going six games, these teams don't look good doing so. No. Nope. Washington, Toronto, they don't look terrifying. Boston, Cleveland's Milwaukee. Cleveland's win looked, last night was bullshit, too. Cleveland's win was bullshit. You know, Milwaukee, Boston look eminently beatable. It's, yeah, it, this East is wide open. Like, the only team that you look at and you go, that team objectively is probably better than the Sixers is Toronto. And they've blown so many playoff series. And I try not, like, a seven-game series really is short when you're talking about, like, I'm always a 82-game better sample size. That being said, this is a pretty established fucking trend right now. Uh, it would be that would be a fun matchup because that's the only team that you look at and just doesn't have an absolute fatal flaw in them. Like a lot of these teams, Boston's offense, Cleveland's defense, whatever you want to say, have real fatal flaws, and Toronto doesn't. Other than that, who scares? Indies looked as good as anybody else, and I don't think Indies a great team. It's it's wide open, wide open. You look on Twitter and all of the uh, embrace debate shows are popping up with, are the Sixers the best team in the East? Those have basically now become the Sixers are the best team in the East. And, uh, I mean, even, God, even Stephen A. and Max Kellerman were at the game the other night. I mean, (laughs) the Sixers are uh, the center of the the sporting universe. Sitting next to Stephen A. takes a lot of restraint, a lot of personal restraint. But I made it through it. I made it through it. 
Were you sitting next to him? Right next to him. Uh, there was one person between us, but yeah. Yep. Impressive. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, – what would you say uh, – Reddick talks all the time about how they've had to adjust their goals this season. And he's right. I mean, we've been there every step of the way. I mean, for for most of the year it was let's try and make the playoffs. And then it was – all right, let's see if we can get the best seed. Let's get home court. Let's get 50 wins. Let's get the three seed. They've blown away all those goals. Let's win a series. They've blown away all of those goals, and yet now we're sitting here in the second round of the playoffs, and I have to say I think it would be a disappointment. There's no other real way to look at it if they don't advance through here. Oh, it would be it would be a huge disappointment. <laughs> That's How absurd. crazy is this? And I mean, look, if it ends up coming to pass where they somehow lose to Boston in the second round, like you still step back, you go, okay, you got Embiid, you got Simmons. We're 40 minutes in the podcast. We've barely talked about the rookie who nearly averaged a triple-double. You're going to be a, a destination in the summer. Maybe Fultz figures it out. Like there's so much more upside to be had. But yeah, you you would be disappointed. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It uh, it's It's silly. The whole The whole season has been silly. Simmons, his contributions are, are so outstanding every night that it just seems ho-hum, a lot of the stuff he does. He doesn't and have I bad was, games anymore, Rich. He does not have bad games. It's 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 remarkable how consistent he is, and we talked a little bit about the backup point guards earlier. That's When push comes to shove, I, I, I like you said, I wouldn't be surprised if Fultz gets another shot with a short leash, but when push comes to, so, uh, to shove – Breck can just play Simmons 40, 41 minutes as long as he stays out of foul trouble. This this guy does not get tired. And some of the plays he made, he uh, again, we've talked about his jump shot all year and how we're still very unconfident in it. Uh, but in that series, he made a couple of those step-back jumpers that were just so deflating for the Heat. There was one of those where uh, Juwan Howard was – like like an assistant coach was exhorting his team from the bench and probably calling out some defensive coverage uh, coverages and w- words of encouragement. And when the Heat played a possession perfectly and Simmons behind the back dribble gets in the middle of the paint, shoots off his left foot, kind of a fade away, and drills it, it's unbelievable how deflating that is, and that's what star players do. They make shots when everything goes wrong and they create plays. I mean, Simmons had another one where he – he got trapped on a pick and roll and he made an unbelievable spin against Tyler Johnson and made a crazy finish over. I forget who it was probably white side. Cause nothing went right for that guy. The whole series. <laughs> he just, it's, it's almost boring. Uh, and I don't want to say this in a, in a negative way. Cause he, he does some thrilling stuff, but it, I, I know what I'm getting from him every night. And it's, Two-way excellence for the most part. Not counting the last game of the season against Milwaukee, which he barely played. And the last time he had a game score of below 10 was on February 27th. That's absurd. Like, the consistency of that has been downright absurd. It really has been better than – I mean, we had pretty high expectations. Like, we – when that whole bullshit Ingram Simmons debate came through, like we, it wasn't a debate. We clearly had him number one. We thought he was going to be a star, 
But for him to finish off the season, last 27 games, averaging 10.1 assists, and the defense he gives you night in and night out, his turnovers are in check for the most part. It really has been incredible. And to watch him, you know, one of the things during the pre-draft process, a lot of people questioned was whether, you know, his intensity level, his focus, his sometimes even love for the game. And I think a lot of that was his kind of stoic demeanor and the fact that he never really showed emotion. And it's funny how on a losing team, that's interpreted as he doesn't care. But when they win, like the Sixers are now, you know, that's interpreted as being collected and calm and a high emotional maturity and, and it's all positives. When his 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 production didn't really change, like he was producing at LSU, his demeanor and his facial expression didn't really change. The context around him changed. And it is funny to me how that has changed, but now everybody, you know, he gets punched in the back of the head by Goran Dragic, doesn't respond, and we just interpret it in such a different way than it used to be. And I do think that's, you know, I, I think I think the situation at LSU was overrated, but we don't have to relitigate the 2016 draft, that's for damn sure. Uh, he yeah. has been better than he has any real right to be. And it's, it's you know, the question came up, I was on the radio on WIP early this week, and John Johnson brought up the question, you know, do you, who do you think will end up being a better player, Embiid and Simmons? I still don't think it's a contest. Because Embiid has literally the best player in the NBA upside in him. And I'm, uh, like, as good as Simmons is, he might only have like top five to seven player in the NBA upside in him. But the fact that we can have a conversation where both of them end up being top ten players, that's all that really matters. Like nobody cares who ends up being the better. Well, I mean, some people probably do, but they should be in the Simmons or Embiid family. For Sixers fans, for people covering the team, the fact that you have two of them, whew, what a, you know, for three years of tanking, that's not a bad uh not a bad haul. Yeah. Well, Adam Silver. No, it was 10 years. Michael Wilbon, 15. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just really annoying. Reddick had that great line. He said it a couple times about Simmons' intensity. Basically, he's a guy who uh, he's sitting behind a glass wall and he's staring out at the rest of us. <laughs> right. uh, and it's true. I mean, his, his fire, he, he let a little bit, bit of it out. I remember he, he had a dunk at the end of game three where he went crazy. But, yeah, it's like you said – he is his uh, crazy ass James Johnson screaming at him. Maybe a little bit of a cocky smirk. Nothing. Goran Dragic literally slapped him in the head. Nothing. Uh, Josh Richardson low bridged him when he was in the middle of the air. That one didn't look like it was on purpose, but I mean, still, it was a scary ass play. And I mean, we we've seen clumsy. Uh, clumsy plays that that result in hard falls turn into extracurricular activity. Nope. Just gets up and walks away. So, yeah, I, you know, as impressive as this kid's skill packages are, skill packages, the, the head he has on his shoulders is also a huge part of why he's this good so early. Yeah, it it's, was uh, – there were two plays that I was surprised how Sixers fans interpreted the. Josh Richardson clearly wasn't trying to undercut Ben Simmons. Like, there was no way in my mind I thought he was trying to do that. Still it dangerous. A second, it was a second foul in two right. minutes, too. Right. It's not like Josh Richardson wanted to get taken out of the game. No, and like I said, clearly dangerous. Like, But I, I don't think the intent was there. And then Justin Anderson, he threw a punch. Like, he, he, just, <laughs> he, he, he just did. He, I mean, it, it's, it's uh, yeah. The, the way he described it on the record, at one point during the interview, 
he's trying to like he's very cautiously talking through it and a player yells over hey why don't you describe what he, what really happened he's like because i don't want to get in trouble he 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 fine whatever like it, it was just interesting to me how vehemently some people were like no i didn't throw a punch All right. i mean I mean, wait, you can say that Wade started it. And oh, of course. That, Wade's that play Anderson, was dirty. I understand why Anderson reacted the way he did. But the uh, how how much people were, you know, just disregarding. Like, it was, it was people were very strong opinion that he, he threw a he, punch. He, he threw a punch, and I was kind of surprised he didn't get ejected. I yeah. was also surprised Dragic didn't get ejected for slapping Simmons in the yeah, head. Absolutely so. should have. And Wade probably should have been ejected for throwing him out of bounds, too. But they were... yeah. We'll just double technical the shit out of everyone. I I hate I despise the double technical. I despise it. Such a crush. It really, it's a crush. it really is the coward's way out. Yep. yep. Yeah. And I do understand. Like I said, I I joked on Twitter. It eliminate the, the double technical. I understand you can't actually do that. There will be times where the initial um thing and then the retaliation both deserve a technical. I get that, but stop using it as a goddamn crutch. Like there should be a limit. Like a, a yearly limit of how many double technicals because referees just no, I'm not going to decide you both get a technical go sit you know whatever. Uh, I mean the the purpose of the du- double technical is I in theory to legislate the game and and keep things under control. If you hand out double technicals though, nothing is going to change except the player's foul total. Right. So if the if the guys have one or two fouls at that point and it's later in the game. You're essentially doing nothing. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, Any last thoughts? I don't want to make this one too long because I figure we'll probably do one after. We'll probably do one after we uh, figure out who we're playing. More of a preview type thing. We'll be more consistent people. We we will. We we really didn't mean to do one in, uh, in, uh, in Miami. It just didn't end up working out that way. Yeah, I mean it's it's a great spot to be in. And uh Rich, they won twenty eight games last year. They won ten two years ago. This is absurd. It's it's crazy and I I mean there's there's no end in sight from where I sit. It's as long as they're healthy, knock on wood. I feel yeah, like, and I feel like I haven't said health permitting in a while <sighs> and that always seems dangerous to me. This uh, and and look, obviously the the big fella's health is going to be a huge deal, but God, there's still so many ways that this team can improve over this and next summer. It's it's crazy. The uh, we we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week privately. I, I made a tweet about it. Watching and this is this is just an overall thought that that also relates a little bit to complimenting the job Brown has done. When you watch the Sixers play, it's fun basketball. When you watch Simmons pass and Redick and Bellinelli move and Embiid play defense, it's fun. Watching a team like Oklahoma City is for a team that has three supposed superstars. Even though I think I, I think even the average fan knows that Melo's stunk for a while now. Uh, it's so gross to watch them play. It for a team that has. Players who I like, like Paul George and Steven Adams, ugh, the, the way they I, – I know they, they won last night with that crazy comeback, but 
God, the, the way they played in Utah, that isolation bullshit basketball, not only are the Sixers winning, they're playing in a style that you can be proud of, that you can like watching. It's just it, – it's so crazy how fast this whole thing came together. I mean, if if we covered – uh, if we covered OKC, Mike wouldn't Mike wouldn't have a job. You can't have a Sixers set of, or an Oklahoma City set of the week. There's no set. There's no set. Here's another terrible mellow isolation. Oh yeah, yeah that's that's good. Stephen Adams is wide open. Nah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> right, right. I'm shooting. <laughs> Between mellow and it, that, that is not the most aesthetically pleasing team to watch. That's for sure. And it's I, I you know we we can bring that comparison to a really good team too in in Houston. Who, uh, who I think has a good chance to win the title. I don't like watching them play offense either, particularly, even though they're ruthlessly efficient with it and Harden is an unbelievable talent and Paul is maybe the best point guard ever. The ball never moves with them either. It's just pick and roll and exploit a matchup and play isolation and you know, it's. I really enjoy watching the Sixers team play, and I, you know, that was a talking point coming into the playoffs. Was all right. The playoffs generally are considered more of a slow it down, isolation type of game. The Sixers, we know, as good as Embiid and Simmons are, they're not built to play that way. Even even with as good as they are, they need some type of movement and some type of structure, usually with Redick involved in the action too. Uh, to execute in the half court, and I mean, through one series, so far so good. It'll be real interesting because Reddick really does keep them afloat in the half court, uh, and whether or not they can bring him back next year, he went from like a, you know, nice backup plan if everything else falls through, to holy crap, how do we, we replace JJ Reddick if we lose him? It, it'll be real interesting to see how they navigate this summer because if you do go out and look. They're, they're changing their identity when you oh, let him go. They would, for he, sure. And really, realistically, the only way I see Redick leaving is if they sign LeBron or Paul George. Like, if they don't, I think they go, okay, JJ, come back. Here's $18 million or whatever it's going to take for another one-year deal. Come back. We'll keep the way our style of play. We'll grow a lot internally with Embiid and Simmons and Fultz and, and maybe even another step for Dario, although with the – improvement he's made you wonder you know Dario's already pretty fucking good uh but we'll, we'll go through internal development internal improvement bring back the group run it back one more year and, and see what we can do in 2019 and, and JJ will be paid very handsomely for that so if we had this discussion where JJ is not part of the team next year I think it's going to be because we have a really good discussion that LeBron or Paul George are it'll still be like you said that will change the identity i'm not saying in a million years don't sign paul george or lebron or lebron just that you will miss a key part of this uh, of this group who knows maybe jj goes you know what i've been in the playoffs my entire career i've never gotten the finals um this team with lebron and embiid and simmons and Sharch and add myself in there that has a chance i'll take the 4.5 million or whatever it is room level exception and fuck it maybe he does that i don't know you know he's close to Brooklyn. Who knows? But it it would be a it would be a big loss. It would be a big loss. It, it, it would be a big loss anyway. He even if you you add LeBron and Paul George or Paul either one. Sorry, I should should call him playoff, playoff P. P. <laughs> uh, if you add those guys, you're obviously going to be a better team at some point. Just the the, the two way talent that that those guys bring. 
there could be a feeling out process, though, in the way that they've already – I mean, the, the chemistry that Simmons and Embiid have with, with Redick, he, he talked about this a little bit after uh, after game four when he set that back screen for the Simmons dunk. Those plays at the end of the game, they, they've just been working on those all year, and they're getting better and better at those. Uh, he's He's been really important, and uh, – I guess we can talk about his off-season plans when we uh, when we actually get there. But yeah, he's he's been a you know everybody some not everybody but some people scoffed at the the twenty three million dollars that he got paid. Honestly, I mean we we talked about how ridiculous it was to look at it that way. That the real value you were getting is the one year deal. He's been worth every penny. He's been worth twenty three million dollars. It's it's really he's been. Certainly a top 15 shooting guard this year. You could probably go, I'd have to really look at it, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's pushing top 10 shooting guard this year just based off his contributions. But then you start looking into team needs and fit and what would have really worked with this roster. He fixes a lot of their deficiencies. He helps extend a lot of their strengths. He's just, I mean, he's been like, you'd like a little better of a defender but at that point, we're nitpicking because of all he does for them on the other end of the court and in transition, too. It's really hard to find that perfect player, too. And he's, as Brett says, he uh, he ticks a lot of boxes. <laughs> yes. That really, if I was ever going to change the uh, the name of this podcast, it would probably be the ticking boxes. Um, and again, it's like a, a typical Colangelo move where it didn't take a genius to figure out that J.J. Redick would be a great fit. We pushed for him long before it happened. But still, they executed. They got the guy they wanted. They didn't compromise their their cap space. It's just been it's 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 fun to watch this team come together. It really is. All right, all right. Well, we will, you know, what Saturday night we'll know who uh, who they will play, which means Sunday we'll probably be traveling because Monday we'll have a game to cover and hopefully we'll either be traveling to Boston or we will be here. Uh, it's true because game one would be in, in Philly if they play Milwaukee, which would be good, which would be good. Um, but thanks for jumping on, Rich, and we will talk to you soon. And I, I, I promise, listeners, this will actually be soon. <laughs> we'll see. See you, man. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. I'm